Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Yes, this is Abi Dawji and this is the Big Picture broadcasting simultaneously on Radio Islam and Radio Alan Sar Alan Wasalan. And how's it? All you millions of wonderful people out there listening very attentively to this program in London, Tehran, Amzinto, Nabuam Sprite, New York, everywhere, and listening with great expectation of hearing some amazing words of wisdom, insightful intellectual discourse, and cutting-edge incisive political analysis. <laughs> Well, you've come to the wrong place, Mamu. Better switch to other stations because here we have an equal measure of high-quality lawaro. I think that's a French word. <laughs> Mixed with some good-natured lampooning and, um, well, with some, with, with, with some well, questionable perspective of what's happening in this crazy world. Garnished with that, of course. In short... The word is Maja. And speaking of Maja, everyone is gearing up for the holidays. Yes, holidays, Maja. <laughs> Packing to go away to resorts here and even overseas. Lots of excitement. Well, I'll be heading out to Morocco with about 50 people on Thursday, inshallah. I am sure many people will be heading for Durban. Durban, as usual. Hey, <laughs> someone just sent me this message. Let's see what it says. Durban beaches are great because if you are tired of standing, you can always grab a stool. <laughs> Good, heavens. Good heavens, what does that mean, eh? I, I don't quite get it. Are they now providing seating for holidaymakers who are tired? How considerate of them. Yes. It's holiday time. Resorts all over are full. Basically, people want to chill. And, of course, the restaurants are all full, chock-a-block. People going out to eat. All part of the holiday atmosphere. Now, on the question of food and eating out, I've come across a strange new concept regarding food places, restaurants. In recent years... There has emerged a new description of eating places. Halal friendly. Halal friendly. I'm sure you must have heard of it. Now, I, I really wonder what it means, halal friendly. I just can't figure it out. Does a hot dog wearing a topi and carrying a tasbi meet you at the entrance of the restaurant and say, Assalamu alaikum, Mota. Welcome, welcome, Habibi. So nice to see you and your wonderful family. Come, let me show you to your table. My name is Zulf Zulfikar Hot Dog, and I'm your friendly waiter for the evening. <laughs> and just when you are about to eat the cheeseburger, it gives you a, a very friendly warning. Hey, Mamu, I'm okay, ne? From the butchery in Forsberg. But don't eat the chips. It's fried in lard. So, there you are, folks. I'm only guessing. But maybe that's what a halal-friendly restaurant is all about. <laughs> and yes, of course, in the restaurant toilet, 
There will be a nice, friendly Istinja plastic jug. And speaking about toilets, dear listeners, I want you to tell me what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear, for example, the government has confirmed that 500 million rands has been reserved for the building of a bridge or stadium or road. What's the first thing that springs to mind? <laughs> That's right, Mota. Who will be looking through a catalog at the Porsche showroom, eh? Love me tender, love me true, all my dreams fulfilled. For my tenders, I love you, and I always will. <laughs> what a lovely song, eh? Some writer said that ANC stands for African National Chorwans. Hmm. What a lot. And so, to the Northern Cape Premier, Zamani Sol, who announced that bucket and pit toilets will be replaced with flushing toilets. Ha! In the township of Campbell, that's where it's going to happen. So nice, ne? And he said that the cost of the project is 120 million rand. Hey! <laughs> and someone worked it out to be 200,000 rands per toilet. And one bright spark comment, commented that maybe the toilets have TVs and also Wi-Fi so that you can order from Uber Eats in case you are hungry while you are low shedding. <laughs> uh, some people can be so disgusting. Eh? Anyway, as soon as the announcement was, was made, the shita hit the fan. Why are you raising your eyebrow there, Motabaji? Nothing crude about that word. Shita is a Japanese word. It's actually from a famous Japanese children's song that goes like this. Hokina kore no kino shita de. Hokina kore no no kino shita de. I don't want to sing the whole song. <laughs> also known as under the big chestnut tree. So there you are, folks. Who said that the big picture is not an educational program, hey? Hey? And please, if you think I'm pulling a fast one, go Google the word Shita, Japanese children's song. Anyway, back to the toilet story. People were ready to condemn it. Condemn it. How can you pay 120 million rands for toilets? That, that of course, will work out to 200,000 rands per toilet. Well, the whole thing was cleared up by the municipal manager, Olile Gecko. I like his name, Gecko. He had to dart in and explain that the 120 million rand was for the construction of the bulk, sewerage, and waterborne sanitations. Big pipes have to be laid, water to be connected, and sewerage to be removed. So it's not the cost of each toilet alone. You see, huh? All you people out there, don't jump to conclusions, boss. Okay. But here's something that's bound to get the good citizens of Camp Campbell constipated. Mr. Gecko said that the project will be completed in 2025. 2025. Yes, sis. I can see someone hiding in the bushes gleef gleefully 
rubbing his hands for a leak in the toilet project so that he can be flush with lacquer mula for loose. Uh, I tried to hit. <coughs> I tried to hit a bit of a pun there, Baji. Did you get it? Flush with boodle. <laughs> Never mind. Your fro will explain it to you. Okay. Right. Uh, and speaking about shita, don't forget that's a Japanese word, as I told you. Here's something else. We are told repeatedly that South Africa is a democracy. Democracy. Well, I told you before that South Africa is in fact a Kakistocracy. Kakistocracy. Let me pronounce it clearly. Kakistocracy. Kakistocracy. No matter. Don't raise the other eyebrow. It's a perfectly acceptable and decent word. Kakistocracy is a government run by the worst, least qualified, or most unscrupulous citizens. It was a word coined in the 17th century. You, <laughs> again, you think I'm pulling a job on you? Nah. Well, go Google it. K-A-K-I-S-T-O-C-R-A-C-Y. Okay, let's get to the hot topic on everyone's mind, and that is Gaza. Well, all other issues uh, seem to be forgotten right off the front page headlines, all forgotten or ignored. Ukraine hasn't been making much into the headlines. And another is the actions of India's Modi and his racist, right-wing supporters. Well, dear listeners, I have a very serious message for you. Looks like danger once again lurks on the horizons for Muslims in India. Hmm? On the horizon. It's going to... Uh, you know, the, I have an article here from uh, the U.S. News website. Uh, I'm going to read the whole article. It's almost like deja vu. That's right, deja vu. You feel like you've heard this bull before. Listen to the Reuters report. An Indian court has granted permission to survey a centuries-old mosque to determine if it contains Hindu relics and symbols, a lawyer said on Thursday, in a boost to Hindu groups which claim it was built on the site of a destroyed Hindu temple. The Shahi Eidgah Masjid, is located in Mathura city in the northern state of Uttar Pradesh. And the site is believed to be the birthplace of Lord Krishna, revered by India's majority Hindu, Hindu population. On Thursday, the Allahabad High Court permitted a survey of the 17th century mosque where Muslims still pray to determine if there are any relics or Hindu symbols inside the complex. Uh, Vishnu Jain who is a lawyer for the Hindu state, I told reporters after the verdict, he said, my demand was that in Shahi Eidgah Masjid, there are a lot of signs and symbols of the Hindu temple. Well, last year, Hindu groups petitioned to keep Muslims from praying in the mosque, saying they suspected that Hindu relics inside could be removed. Vinod Bansal, a spokesman for hardline Hindu organization, the uh, Vishwa Hindu Parishad, VHP, told CNN and News Channel uh, 18 that will come out now. Was it a mosque or a temple? Earlier this year, another court allowed a similar survey of the centuries-old uh, Gyan Vayapi Mosque in Prime Minister Narendra Modi's constituency of Varanasi to determine if it had been built atop a Hindu temple. Members of hardline Hindu groups linked to Modi's nationalist uh, 
Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, believe that Islamic invaders and rulers destroyed Hindu temples over several centuries. They want to reclaim and restore some of the most revered temples, including uh, in Mathura and Varanasi, a polarizing dispute that pits them against India's 200 Muslim, 200 million minority Muslims. A similar dispute in Ayodhya led to Hindu mobs raising the Babri Mosque in 1992, following claims it was built atop a temple dedicated to Lord Ram at his birthplace. The site was handed over to Hindu groups by the Supreme Court in 2019, and Modi is due to inaugurate a grand Ram temple there next month. There was no immediate response from Muslim groups to Thursday's court order. Alauddin Owaisi, a prominent Muslim lawmaker, said the Mathura dispute has been settled dec decades ago, but a new group has been raking it up. Um, he said uh, this group has made a mockery of the law and judicial process. Law doesn't matter anymore. Robbing Muslims of their dignity is the only goal now, he said. Well, there you are, folks. The fascists are on the march. Muslims in India face the same problem as the Palestinians. Bigotry, discrimination, and violent attacks. And so let's cross over to Palestine. But first, here's a quick quote I just came across. Peace is not just about the absence of conflict, it's also about the presence of justice. Ooh, nice one. Peace is not just about the absence of conflict, it's also about the presence of justice. That's a good one. Basically meaning no justice, no peace, and Israel is trying to achieve peace, peace through the barrel of a gun, just as apartheid South Africa did for 50 years. And it goes without saying that I always considered what Israel has done to the, and is still doing to the Palestinians to, to be absolutely horrible. But what really impacted on me very greatly and took me to another level was the issue around the murder of journalist Shirin Abu Akhle. Remember her? Hmm. There have been so many crimes committed by Israel, almost to bumper to bumper, that one cannot keep track keep focus on all the atrocities. She was such a brave and wonderful person. Intrepid is the word that comes to mind. It means fearless. Yes, she, report, she reported live, directly from many dangerous situations, telling the world the truth of what's going on. And then they killed her. Israel, as expected, immediately said that it was a Palestinian gunman, gunman who shot her. Then he changed the story and said that she was possibly killed in the crossfire, so we can't, we can't determine who actually killed her. And then finally, there was some sort of admittance that, yes, it could be an Israeli soldier who accidentally shot her. But let me tell you what really impacted on me very greatly. It was the funeral of Shirin. You must have seen the large crowd that was proceeding to the graveyard with the coffin. Right? She was Christian, of course, as you know. And then suddenly a group of soldiers appeared and began, began viciously attacking the bearers of the coffin. Absolutely horrifying. Incredible. The coffin nearly fell to the ground, yet the beating continued. I, you know, I just couldn't believe my eyes. 
It was then that I concluded that these people, the so-called most moral army in the world, were lunatics and mad dogs, barbarians. How can you attack mourners? You murdered Shirin. The world was outraged. And one would expect that you would be somewhat coy, right? to be embarrassed, you know, and sort of keep quiet at this assass assassination of an, on, uh, an innocent person. But no, 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 no. The attitude, attitude was to hell with what the world, world, world thinks. We will add further insult to injury. Or should I say, we will add more injury to the injury already inflicted and show our jat, act like mad dogs, and the world can go and jump. So what did it, if it affects our image? Stuff the image. And so at that point, the attack on a dignified funeral procession deeply confirmed in me that the, the, the barbarity of that state, a lunatic state, and since then, the horror of the attack on Gaza confirms this. Far worse than apartheid South Africa, no doubt about that in my mind whatsoever. And so yesterday, I was speaking on the phone, <laughs> I was speaking on the phone, and said that it's quite remarkable that people around the world are boycotting Zara. My five-year-old granddaughter was really upset at hearing that. My five-year-old granddaughter, Zara, nearly burst out crying. I finished the call very quickly and I had to convince her that the world wasn't boycotting her, wasn't against her. Well, I'm sure that you know uh, all about what the boycott is about. Your people are so well informed and fully aware of every important world event. Hey, I'm sure that you can give a detailed analysis about the outcome of the climate change conference in Dubai that just concluded. Listeners of the big picture are a discerning, highly informed bunch of intellectuals. No doubt about that, Mamu. You listening? <laughs> Well, for those who don't make it in that group, let me explain. The whole Zara issue, eh? adverts appeared in the media of Zara, that's a big clothing chain, international clothing chain, the models carrying what looked like bodies wrapped in white material. Netizens, nice word that, eh? Netizens, people who, spread, who spend lots of time on the internet, that is, citizens of the internet, netizens. You got it? Right, lots of time on uh, social media, etc. Well, netizens saw these images and concluded that Zara was mocking the people of Gaza who were carrying the dead, who were carrying their dead wrapped in white calico. And people are angry, very angry. And so protesters around the world demonstrated their disgust at Zara by entering their stores holding white bundles and also calling for a boycott and so on. What added to the anger was a letter written to a Palestinian model who works now and then for Zara, modeling the clothes, by the name of Kahir Harhash. Uh, and this letter was written to him by the head designer of Zara clothing, Vanessa Perelman. The letter very harshly attacked the Palestinian. I won't read the whole thing, but here's one small part. Um, ooh. Right, here's it. Maybe, she wrote, maybe if your people were educated, then they wouldn't blow the hospitals and schools that Israel helped to pay for in Gaza. 
Israel doesn't teach their children to hate, nor throw stones at soldiers as your people do. <laughs> right. She said, maybe if your people were educated, then they wouldn't blow the hospitals, blow up the hospitals and schools that Israel helped to pay for in Gaza. Israelis don't teach their children to hate, nor throw stones at soldiers as your people do. So there you are, folks. This Vanessa lady really added fuel to the fire. And you know what? I immediately thought, what a first-class mampara. Although she wrote the letter to the Palestinian model in 2021, it's only surfaced now and created a firestorm. Hmm? Perelman created peril for Zara. Zara came out and said, no, no, no. People misinterpreted the advert. It was planned way back in July and has nothing to do with the present war in Gaza. Well, that doesn't sound convincing because the advert shows broken down structures in the background, very much like the Gaza landscape. But, but, my focus is on what Vanessa, the Sarah's head clothing designer, said. Israel doesn't teach children to hate. Doesn't teach its children to hate. Okay, let's unpack that. Firstly, do the Palestinians teach their children to hate? Well, to illustrate this, let me tell you a story which I may have told you previously. And I, and I go way back to the apartheid days. I was in my hometown, Port Chepson. I went to the charge office at the police station to report an accident. As I stood there waiting, a young black man, young man, you know, about 18 or 20 years old, was brought in from the cells. He was handcuffed. He had a cigarette in his hand, and he tried to take a puff of it. A white policeman barked at him, stop smoking. Then a young white policewoman stepped up to the young man and gave him a huge thunderous smack that shook him up very badly and brought tears to his eyes. Well, as you can imagine, I was shocked. Then he was taken away. I heard the woman laughingly saying to her colleagues, I just wanted to know how it feels to smack a man. And they all laughed with her. You know, I remember that episode uh, as if it happened yesterday. And I'm, I'm wondering exactly what went through the young guy's mind. Hmm? Do you think his father said to him, Oh, son, don't hey, just accept the, the club as a friendly gesture. <laughs> to the young people who marched and were gunned down in June 76, taught by their parents to hate apartheid, or the people thrown into the back of a police van because they couldn't produce the pass. When you are oppressed or brutalized, you hate simple, Habibi, simple. Hmm? Simple, it's natural. For example, here's a question to you. Do you hate what Modi's government is doing to the Muslims? Answer is self-evident. Do you see what I'm saying? Everyone hates injustice, whether the so-called <coughs> Red Indians or the Rohingyas or the Aborigines. It doesn't have to be taught to you. Hmm? It's a natural response. And so, yes, the people of Palestine, including the children, hate what Israel is and has been doing to them for a very, very long time. So, Vanessa Perelman, you need some very serious introspection and maybe simply get your facts right and stop being the arch racist that you are. Or better still, 
why don't you look at the flip side of the coin? By that I mean, go and investigate whether, in fact, Israeli children, yes, Israeli children are taught to hate. And you will find, much to your surprise, perhaps even shock is a better word, that in fact it's true that Israeli children are taught to hate. Don't take my word for it. Okay, there's clear documented proof of this. Here is the evidence. It's a longish article published on uh, Al Jazeera. And I really don't uh, don't know what parts to leave out. But bear with me. It uh, makes for fascinating reading. Fascinating reading indeed. Um, it's headlined. It's, re- it's not shocking to see Israeli children celebrate the Gaza genocide. Israel has long been indoctrinating its children to believe Palestinians are less than human and thus not worthy of empathy or compassion. In November, Israel's public broadcaster Khan uploaded on its official X page a video of Israeli children singing a song celebrating their country's ongoing genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. The broadcaster deleted the video clip after a a huge online backlash. Even after the video was silently erased from social media, however, the song remained a subject of discussion and controversy. Many across the world were shocked to see the children sing happily about eliminating an entire people within one year. Yet a closer look at Israeli literature and curricula shows that this open celebration of genocide was the only natural outcome of Israel's persistent indoctrination or brainwashing, to be more blunt, of its children to ensure that they do not view Palestinians as human and fully embrace apartheid and occupation. There is myriad evidence of Israel's brainwashing of its citizens to erase the humanity of Palestinians spanning many decades. Israeli scholar Adir Cohen, for example, analyzed for his book titled An Ugly Face in the Mirror, National Stereotypes in Hebrew Children's Literature. Some 1,700 Hebrew language children's books published in Israel between 1967 and 1985 and found that a whopping 520 of them contained humiliating negative descriptions of the Palestinians. He revealed that 66% of these 520 books referred to Arabs as violent, 52% as evil, 37% as liars, 31% as greedy, 28% as two-faced, and 27% as traitors. Such persistent negative descriptions dehumanize Palestinians in the eyes of generations of Israelis, establish them as dangerous others, that's the Palestinians, and pave the way for children to celebrate the genocide in a video produced by the state broadcaster in 2023. Towering Palestinian academic and literary critic Edward Said also elaborated on the issue in his 1979 book, The Question of Palestine, noting that Israeli children's literature, in his words, is made up of valiant Jews who always end up by killing low, treacherous Arabs with names like Mastul, meaning crazy, Bandura, meaning tomato, or Bukra, tomorrow, tomorrow. As a writer for Haaretz said on September 20, 1974, children's books deal with our topic, the Arab who murders Jews out of pleasure, 
and the pure Jewish boy who defeats the coward swine. Israel has also used the painful memory of the Holocaust to desensitize Israeli children to the suffering of Palestinians and support without question Israel's treatment, Israel's treatment of them. In his 1999 book, One Nation Under Israel, historian Andrew Hurley explained how Israel weaponizes the Holocaust education it provides to Israel's children against the Palestinians. This is what he says in the book. The mind of a child, or of anyone else for that matter, cannot absorb the horrors of the Holocaust without finding someone to hate, Hurley argued. Since there are no Nazis around against whom vengeance can be sought, former Prime Minister Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Shamir, and Ariel Sharon have solved this problem by calling the Arabs the Nazis of today and a proper target for retribution. Israel's current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appears to, appears to be eagerly continuing with this tradition and has even claimed that it was a Palestinian who gave Adolf Hitler the idea for the Holocaust. Israeli professor Metal Nasi strongly collaborates Hurley's views about, uh, above on the ramification of the way the Holocaust is taught. In her 2016 study, Young Children's Experience and Learning in Intractable Conflict, she found that 68% of Israeli children suggested beating fighting, killing, or expelling the Arabs as a solution. Nasi states that imparting those or these beliefs at such an early age in a frequent and intense manner leads to inculcation of these conflict-related narratives deep within the children's socio-psychological uh, repertoires. Of course, the Israeli state's brainwashing of its citizens against the Palestinians is not limited to ridiculous lies about history told by political leaders or to children's literature. This propaganda effort is highly systemic and at the very core of Israeli education. Just take a look. Let me just check the time very quickly. Right. We've got time here. Just take a look at Israel's official textbook. For his 1998 research paper, The Rocky Road Towards Peace, Beliefs on Conflict in Israeli Textbooks, Israeli academic Daniel Bar Tal analyzed 124 Israeli textbooks on various subjects and for various age groups approved by the Israeli Ministry, Ministry of Education to be used in religious and secular schools across the country. <clears throat> to map out the ideological content transmitted to Israeli children in the education system, he looked at which societal beliefs that society members shared uh, topics and issues of special concern for the society received the most coverage in state-approved textbooks. He found that overall, the societal belief that the beliefs of the Israelis relating to national security received the most emphasis, followed by those... Okay, I'm going to leave all of that now, right? The widespread demonization of Palestinian in textbooks, coupled with the emphasis placed on positive representation of Jews and the claim that they are victims in the Israel-Palestine conflict and supported by overarching narratives about the importance of national security and survival, created the perfect conditions for generations of Israelis to leave the education system convinced 
that any and all aggression against Palestinians, including ethnic cleansing and genocide, genocide are at least justifiable, if not necessary. This is because when children are taught, uh, taught that they belong to an inherently good chosen people and they are being attacked and victimized by a demonic, inhuman other, they easily accept the oppression, displacement, or mass killing of those who belong to this other, that is the Palestinians, without any moral qualm or hesitation. Yeah, there's a lot to read there, but I think I'm going to leave it there. Uh, so several decades have passed since Ariel uh, Sharon had made had these discussions with young Israeli conscripts and learned that very few of them see Palestinians as humans. Yet the ongoing brutal war on Gaza and the many posts we see online by young Israelis, including many young conscripts, celebrating the carnage, applauding the military and mocking Palestinian suffering proved that little has changed since then. So, no, no one should be shocked to see Israeli children sing happily about the genocide of the Palestinians. Israel has been brainwashing them to do so for many generations. Okay. Well, there you are, Vanessa Perelman. Clear, scholarly research proving that, in fact, Israeli children and adults are, are taught to hate. Zara, take note, okay? fire that racist. And all this hate taught from an early age translates to action, <clears throat> as you heard in the article. It translates to action, horrible treatment of the Palestinians as if they are pests like vermin, like cockroaches, cockroaches that must be eliminated. Now, yesterday I saw a chilling video, chilling video. A group of heavily armed Israeli soldiers had stopped a young Palestinian man, uh, probably about, the, about 25 years old. After questioning him, and as they were about to walk away, one gave the young man a very hard smack. O obviously, the young man was angered by this, humiliated. And as the soldiers were walking a few meters away, he shouted something at them. They came back and got him in a tight chokehold and threw him to the ground. Well, he stood up again as they walked away and he again shouted something at them. I think he was really, really brave. He just stood his ground. I mean, after that total humiliation by these thugs, well, he needed to respond. And they came back and they threw him to the ground again and each one took turns to brutally kick him. I, I myself was chilled and angered by this action of the cowards with big guns. You know, I, I can't begin to even imagine what must have gone through that young man's mind. No doubt he must have wished that he also had a gun. But you see the brutality of the lunatic, barber, bar barbaric regime, the sheer horror inflicted on Gaza. Brutality like the world hasn't seen for a long time since, uh, as they say, the Holocaust, since uh, Rwanda, since this slaughter in Srebrenica in Bosnia. And yesterday, I saw a clip, I saw a video clip of Aaron Burnett of CNN. 
interviewing Netanyahu's spokeswoman, Tai Heinrich. Erin asked her, what do you think about the fact that so many Palestinian civilians are being killed? Here's her answer, word for word. Eh? This is what she said, <coughs> Netanyahu's spokeswoman. She said, we don't want to see any civilian casualties in Gaza. We want to ease the civilian suffering. No other Western military have ever done before as we have to safeguard the civilian population in an enemy war zone. And I think Israel was defining the gold standard of urban warfare. The fact that we are telling the civilian population where our soldiers are and when, that is unprecedented. That is what the IDF, Israeli Defense Force, is doing. Because we are a moral military, a moral country. Hmm? That is what the IDF is doing because we are a moral military, a moral country. Dear listeners, when I heard that, I wanted to rush to the bathroom sink. She must be thinking that she's speaking to people who are brain dead. And maybe, maybe there are many people in the West who are to swallow such unadulterated bull. And she said that Israel is defining the gold standard regarding warfare, meaning that they are teaching the world the highest standard of ensuring that total care is taken to ensure that civilians are not targeted. Yeah. <laughs> you need to smoke something really, some really good stuff from Sparks Road to believe that, Mamo. And three days ago, that doddery old geriatric Joe Biden, also known as Genocide Joe, made a big boo-boo, big boo-boo. He spoke the truth. <laughs> yeah, he spoke the truth. He said that Israel is losing international support because of its indiscriminate bombing of Gaza. Woo! What a blunder, eh? Doesn't he know that presidents don't speak the truth about Israel? Someone should have, uh, should make him write 100 lines. I must never, ever criticize Israel, uh, America's closest ally. Israel, we got your back. Remember, he said that right at the start of this attack on Gaza. Israel, we got your back. Well, it looks like he stabbed Israel in the back with his comment. Because when you say indiscriminate bombing, you mean bombing carelessly, not concerned about whether bombs fall on civilians and so on. And if that's the case, then clearly it's a war crime and contradicts Israel's claim that it is only targeting Hamas. The so-called gold standard goes out of the window. But, but did Biden make a mistake when he said that the bombing was indiscriminate? Not at all. Listen to this. Nearly Half of the air-to-ground munitions, that is, the missiles, Israel has dropped on the Gaza Strip are unguided or dumb bombs. CNN reported on Thursday, citing, right, quoting a U.S. intelligence assessment. U.S. intelligence assessment. The report said Israel had used 29,000 air-to-ground munitions in its bombardment of Gaza, a total that does not include artillery shells and tank munitions that are also being fired on the Strip. 
The assessment from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence found 40 to 45% of the 29,000 munitions have been dumb bombs, almost half of them, dumb bombs, and the rest have been precise guided munitions. Unguided munitions are less precise and are generally considered more of threat of a threat to civilians, but Israel is also slaughtering civilians with precision-guided munitions. A report from Plus 972 magazine revealed Israel is purposefully targeting civilian areas and launching strikes that might kill one Hamas commander, knowing hundreds of civilians will be killed. Amnesty International conducted an investigation and found Israel targeted two homes in Gaza full of civilians. Well, I suppose you know quite about the targeting of families being wiped out and so on. The intelligence assessment comes after President Biden called Gaza's uh, Israel's Gaza bombing indiscriminate, but vowed to keep on supporting it anyway. Despite the massive civilian death toll in Gaza, the U.S. has no plans to restrict military aid to Israel. <sighs> well, there you are. So Biden spoke the truth. Indiscriminate bombing. It's a war crime. But wait, if Israel, if Israel is committing war crimes, then America is also guilty for knowingly supplying the weapons that's killing civilians. The aha factor is that both Netanyahu and Biden need to be taken in handcuffs to the International Criminal Court in The Hague and spend a long time in throng. Biden, <laughs> he did say uh, that he had a strong liking for Netanyahu for more than uh, 50 years or so. Well, they can <clears throat> get to know each other even better in prison. But that's wish wishful thinking, folks, because that donkey, Karim Khan, visited Israel, had a friendly meeting with Netanyahu and had tea and with Mahmoud Abbas and flew out saying, yes, 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 there must be an investigation of war crimes. <laughs> what a first class laddu, eh? But I'm going to tell you something that I'm sure you don't know. Did you know that the United Nations has what is known as a genocide office? Mm, did you know that? Listen to this. And Alice, Alice uh, Wairimu Nderitu, has one job that's spelled out that's spelled out in her official title. She is the United Nations Secretary General's special advisor on the prevention of genocide. Whoa tan -tan <laughs> Yet while human rights groups, independent UN experts and genocide scholars are ringing the alarm bells over Israel's extermination campaign in Gaza, Inderitu has remained Silent. On October 15th, Inderitu did issue a statement strongly condemning no less than three times Hamas for attacking Israel on 7th October. She apparently accepts as fact all of Israel's unverified and quickly unraveling claims about that day. And you know what? Those claims are unraveling very fast. Inderitu even suggests that Palestinians attack Israel. Uh, not because they are under a brutal decades-long occupation, but rather on the basis, in her words, on the basis of identity, echoing Israel's absurd and 
reprehensible propaganda that it is anti-Semitism that motivates Palestinian resistance. And the Reto pointedly did not condemn Israel's barbaric and indiscriminate bombardment of Gaza, which by that date, had, had when, she, when she spoke about it, had killed more than 2,300 Palestinians and injured almost 10,000. The death, <clears throat> the death toll now is at least 18,000, and nearly half of them children. Well, in a highly unusual move, dozens of UN staff last month signed a memo condemning Indiritu's double standards and refusal to address Israel's illegal and inhumane actions in Gaza. And in a letter to Indiritu, earlier this month, more than a dozen Palestinian human rights organizations expressed alarm at her lopsided statement and continuing silence about Gaza. They said, your silence on the risk of genocide in Palestine, on Palestine, in Palestine, is deafening. The rights group wrote to addressing both Indiritu and her colleague George Obo, the special advisor to the Secretary General on the Indiritu cannot claim ignorance about what is happening in Gaza, because as early as October 13, Palestinian human rights group called on world governments to urgently intervene to protect the Palestinian people against genocide against genocide. Well, there's a lot to read there, but all I have to say is that she's no better than Karim Khan. He should change, he should change his name to Karim Khan. He can't take action against Israel. Meanwhile, the suffering in Gaza continues as the whole world watches. It's horrible, 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 horrible. Here's the last word about this horrible situation. Let me see where we are. People in Gaza described begging for bread, paying 50 times more than usual for a single can of beans and slaughtering a donkey to feed a family as food aid sucks were unable to reach most parts of the bombarded Palestinian territory. Heartbreaking, isn't it? And so we come to the end of the big picture program. The big picture program. There's going to be a small insert after um, after the big picture by Professor Normal Finkelstein. So stay tuned for that. And as I said, we come to an end of the big picture. And speaking about pictures, I saw a WhatsApp post of a picture. A Buddha-like figure is sitting cross-legged on a platform, giving some seriously profound advice to his disciples sitting respectfully in front of him. And he says this, life is short. Life is short. Make sure you spend as much time as possible arguing with strangers on the internet. <laughs> Many of you do that, don't you? They are words of wisdom. This is the big picture, and this is A.B. Dawji bidding you all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.